Good morning, everyone. You know me. That's not enough for me. Good morning. Good morning. You all had coffee, a wonderful breakfast, so I want to hear that energy, and it's great to seek the Lord together this morning. Amen? Like the song says, we seek Him in the morning, and that's what we're doing. Not that... God is not far away from us. The Word of God says that God is very close to us. But the Word of God also says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So it is this purpose and this reason why we're in the presence of God together. We want to seek Him. We want to listen from Him. We want to receive from what He has in store for us this morning from His Word. And the title that I gave for this message this morning is called Beautiful Collision. And I know it doesn't really communicate much, but we're going to talk about the grace of God. And I'm going to explain the title in a little while. But the Word of God says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, gives us a very important warning for all of us this morning. The Word of God says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. You want to read together this morning? Let's read it together. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And this word grace is not a new word to us this morning. It's familiar. We sang about it just now. And because it's familiar, it can become a problem. The song says, this is amazing grace. But many times it's easy for us to forget what is so amazing about grace. The word translated misses could also be translated fails to receive or fails to obtain, fails to experience the grace of God. So this morning I'd like God really to restore our amazement when we hear the word grace from his word. But grace is better understood through stories and experience. When Jesus wanted to help people understand what is the grace of God, he didn't give a lengthy theological explanation. He told a story. He told the story of the prodigal son that I would like us to read together this morning. The word of God says, Then Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the property. So the father divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son gathered his possessions and left for a country far away from home. There he wasted everything he had on a wild lifestyle. He had nothing left when a severe famine spread throughout that country. He had nothing to live on. So he got a job from someone in that country and was sent to feed pigs in the fields. No one in the country would give him any food, and he was so hungry that he would have eaten what the pigs were eating. Finally, he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more food than they can eat while I'm starving to death here? I'll go at once to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Make me one of your hired men. So he went at once to his father. While he was still at a distance, his father saw him and felt sorry for him. He ran to his son, put his arms around him and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. 
I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. The father said to his servants, hurry, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let's celebrate with a feast. My son was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but has been found. Then they began to celebrate. This is the grace of God. Unmerited favor, unmerited forgiveness. And this is the grace of God that allows us to understand the heart of the Father. We know that the grace of God is not just a feeling that God had, but it's costly. Because the person that said this parable, this story, is actually the Son of God, the Son of Man who died on the cross, so that this relationship, this forgiveness, could reach us today so that we could enter this relationship with God. Yes, it's unmerited grace. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited forgiveness. But it was costly to God himself. So it doesn't come cheap. But we have the privilege of understanding through this story the heart of the Father, the heart of God. How we should value the grace of God. How we need to make sure that no one is missing on experiencing the grace of God on their lives. Now let me explain the title. Author Kyle Eidelman uses this phrase to describe the moment grace finally catches up on someone's mess. That's what he calls beautiful collision. These words, they don't seem to go together because collision brings to mind things like being broken or wrecked. Not words that really are synonymous with beautiful. But the Gospels, they're full of beautiful collisions. When a broken and a wrecked life collides with the grace of God, it's a beautiful thing. So this story also shows us our ability to appreciate grace and the grace of God. It is directly correlated with the degree to which we understand, we recognize the ugliness of our own sin. The more I understand how sinful I am, how poor I am, how flawed I am, the more I can appreciate the beauty of God's grace. Because we are all the prodigal sons in this story, if you haven't understood so far. We were all these ones that the Bible says in Romans 3.23, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. The Bible is holding up a mirror before us and confronts us with the reality of who we are. It's not a very not understandable concept that you don't like yourself very much sometimes. Because the things that we do, the things that we're capable of doing, the things that we feel, the thoughts that come to our minds, they just demonstrate how we all fall short of God's glorious standard. I'm sure that you've heard this information before. I doubt this is new. So the question is, how do you respond to this information? And I was reading this story about two friends they were talking about exactly this, about human sinfulness. And one of them became quite defensive and he said, I am not that bad. I'm sorry, I understand the prodigal son story. I understand that, yes, we're all very imperfect human beings and I'd not say that I'm a perfect, but most people would consider me a good man. 
He thought it would be unfair to be called a sinner and be judged by God's standard. He said, how, how fair is it to set a standard that no one can ever meet and then call everyone a sinner? It's like setting up a target that is out of range and then blaming the shooter for not being able to hit it. Then he got interrupted by his wife. She turned to her husband and said, do you think it's okay to get drunk and yell at your spouse? Do you think it's okay to lie about your sales numbers at work? Do you think it's okay to tell your son you'll be at his music recital and then not showing up? You say it's not fair to be held by God's standards, but you fail to meet your very own standards. And I had never thought about that that way. We work hard at convincing ourselves we are not that bad. But the truth is we're worse than we ever imagined. But, and the word of God says in Romans 5, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through Jesus Christ. For all who receive it will live and triumph over sin and death. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So with this verse, Paul set up an equation that it's the next slide that I want to show you. On one side is your sin on this line. And your sin is worse than you can imagine. You can try to hide it. You can minimize it. You can rationalize it. You can try to dismiss it, but you have it. And according to the word of God, it's separating you from God. So I want to invite you this morning to write your worst sin on that line over there. The worst thing that you've ever done, the worst thing that you've ever thought, the worst thing that happened in your life. Now on the other side of the equation is God's grace. When Jesus died on the cross, we are now able to receive his gift of forgiveness. The Bible declares us righteous before God, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Jesus did for us. So after putting your sin on one side and God's grace on the other, Paul then solves the equation. He says, grace is greater. Even greater is God's wonderful grace. It doesn't give me any pleasure as a human being to be called a sinner or even to tell you in your eyes, declaring the word of God, that you are sinners, that you have a problem with sin. Because we're all made of the same material. But if I need to understand the grace of God, I need to understand who I am. And I need to understand my own heart. Otherwise, we will not be able to appreciate the grace of God. Because it doesn't come free. It's not a nice feeling. It was costly to God himself. Even greater is God's wonderful grace. I can tell you confidently that you've done nothing so horrible that grace cannot cover it. Grace is always greater. No matter what. 
No matter what you're going through, no matter your problems, no matter the consequences, no matter if people are in prison. I just saw the worst movie yesterday, a true story. This guy that killed over 400 people, he was, he was a nurse and he injected medication in, in, in people's medication at the hospital. So he got him detected during 16 years. He went from hospital to hospital and no one could prove that he was in the origin of those crimes. The most horrible story, it seems like the most horrible human being that ever existed, but still the word of God declares grace is greater. The grace of God is greater than the worst sin. So we need to stop comparing ourselves to other people. I, my, I sin and my sin is as horrible as any other sin, but even greater is the grace of God. The greatness of God's grace means I don't have to keep trying to convince myself that I'm not that bad, I'm not a bad person. God's grace is greater than I could ever imagine. And it's the gift of God to you. God wants to cover that sin God wants to cover that past with his grace. The moment that you come to your senses, like the prodigal son in this story, Father, I've sinned. I did something terrible. I don't even deserve to be called your son and daughter. Please do something. I don't want to be where I am right now. And the father sees from afar and starts running to you. God is running towards you this morning like never before. He's just waiting for that moment that you realize that without him, it doesn't make any sense. Paul's warning to make sure that we're not neglecting the grace of God is followed by another warning of what actually happens when someone misses it. In Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When we miss out on the grace of God, a bitter root begins to grow. In Hebrew culture, any poisonous plant would be called a bitter plant. So the author of Hebrews uses bitter root as a metaphor to make it clear that when we miss out the grace of God, we become toxic. Religion without grace is poisonous. A church without grace is poisonous. A heart without grace is poisonous. And this bitter root may be small and slow in its growth, but eventually the poison takes effect. When we become attached to emotions like anger, resentment, unforgiveness, we store them in the closet of our hearts, even though they don't bring us any joy, even though they are stealing us of our peace, we keep them and we can't seem to let them go. And over the years, our anger and resentment, they actually start to pile up. They never remain just the same. How many of you know the name Marie Kondo? Show hands. Okay. Many of you know um, that she conquered the world through minimalism. She has show on Netflix. She has... Um, books that she uh, is a world best-selling author, but she provides a key to knowing exactly what you want to keep 
and then getting rid of everything else. And it's very interesting. The key is that you pick up each and every item in your house, one at a time, and you ask each item, do you spark joy? I've never done it, actually. Maybe I need to try this. And if it does, you keep it. And if, you, if not, you get rid of it. It doesn't matter how much it costs. You need to get rid of it. But it's similar to this exercise that we need to do. We need to clean our closets. We need to clean our hearts. And for most of us, there is a lot that we need to get rid of. And the Word of God gives us an example in Ephesians 4.31. It says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Don't you wish it was as easy as this verse makes it sound? But getting rid of bitterness and anger can be painful. It's easier just to shut the closet door, pretend that everything is fine. We all have that room in our houses, right? Or it's the storage room, or it's below the bed, or a deep down corner of the closet that no one can ever open. It's easier than having to deal with the mess. The first step is to decide if this is a journey that we want to make, or at least if we are willing to try. There is no magic race button that we press that erases painful memories or heals the wounds in our hearts that others have caused us. But the difficult journey begins with the willingness to forgive, even if forgiveness seems too much to ask. Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew 18 with a question. We're going to see a parable, but before the parable, we see that Peter asked Jesus, it seemed like a generic question, but I think there was a specific motive, a specific reason why he asked this. He asked Jesus in Matthew 18, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? How many times does Peter have to forgive a person that hurts him? And I'm sure, I'm quite sure that he had someone in mind. He even said like a brother or sister, but he knew exactly who it was. Someone had hurt him not once or twice, but repeatedly. And he even makes a guess at the right answer, seven. And probably he's thinking, I'm being very gracious here. Because according to the Jewish law and rabbis, they were supposed to forgive someone up to three times. The fourth time, they didn't have to forgive anyone. So it comes to Jesus, Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the grace of God in person. So seven times, that's good enough, right? That's being not even double. It's one extra over three times. I imagine he's expecting Jesus to commend, wow, Peter, you're so, you're so great. You're so forgiving, seven times, amazing, incredible, gracious of you. Why can't all the disciples be like you? But this question, we also do it to Jesus. Jesus, how far is too far? How much 
is too much. When is the hurt that has been done to me greater than the grace that you want me to give? When does the grace run out? Jesus answers Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations even say 70 times seven. And I don't think it really matters if Jesus was saying 77 or 490 times. He's pointing to the board and he's telling Peter, Peter, grace is greater. Grace is always greater. Maybe we're willing to accept this on an intellectual level, but emotionally, the equation just doesn't work for us many times. It's not that we want to continue living with our wounds or carry the weight of bitterness. It's that giving grace doesn't feel like an option to us. Maybe you've done the math yourself and you reach the conclusion that the hurt done to you is greater than the grace that you are able to give. It just doesn't feel like forgiveness is possible. But Jesus' challenge to you this morning is, are you at least willing to try? Jesus understands how difficult this equation can be. So here comes the parable that Jesus told Peter. Jesus tells this story of the unmerciful servant to help us understand not just the greatness of grace we received, but the greatness of grace that we are to give. And it says in Matthew 18, starting in verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And uh, I mean, we're just going to read a few verses. I'm going to tell this story, most of it. He takes a look at the books and we're told that a man owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. I don't know how many bags of gold you have at home. I don't think we were, any of us really have. But that's a lot of gold. 10,000 bags of gold can be roughly, roughly equivalent to 150 million euros today. I don't think any master would loan this amount of money to someone. And no servant would ever be able to pay it back. So Jesus uses uh, hyperbole here to make the point that this debt that this man had was never going to be able to be repaid back to him. It was a huge debt. And Jesus continues, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he held, the, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the master realizes this man will never be able to pay him back, so he decides to auction off everything that they own, including their own lives, to slave or work. And this wasn't unfair, especially at that time. This was the kind of treatment expected for any debt that could not be repaid. So this parable is meant to reflect our own standing with God. We're called in to give an account of our lives, he has been keeping track and we're all guilty. We all have sin. We wrecked up a debt that we can never repay with our lives. 
There is no amount of good deeds. There is no amount of good things that we can present our king that will somehow get us back to even with him. Nothing we can say or do that will make things right. And verse 26 says, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The master knows that this is not going to happen. There's no chance this servant will ever be able to repay the debt. But incredibly, the master takes pity on him. And verse 27, Jesus tells us the master cancels the debt and lets the man go. 150 million euros forgiven. It's an incredible act of grace. The master doesn't even extend the note or lower the monthly payments. He simply deletes it from the record. As significant as the debt was, the master's grace was greater. But then this parable takes a disturbing turn. Verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. The servant who was forgiven 150 million euros finds a co-worker who owes him about 20 euros. He begins to choke him and demand repayment. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. This is exactly what he told the king. He is being asked for the same grace that he has received, only on a much lesser degree. If you've never heard this story before, what do you think will happen? Of course he's going to forgive him. He was just forgiven the biggest debt of his life. Of course he's going to show the same mercy. How could he not? But verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The next detail in the story is easy to miss, but we can't overlook what happens. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The other servants of the master are the ones who report the unforgiving servant to the master. They saw how much grace this man received and then that this guy refused to give it to others. They were outraged. Why? It was because they live in this community of grace together. They have a, great, a king that is so graceful that they all live under. And all of a sudden, this man that received the, the grace of God is not willing to give it to others. They have a master who was known for being so benevolent. The community is outraged. Outrage is also sometimes translated greatly distressed or very sad. And today the church is Jesus' community. And as our leader demonstrated through his actions and reinforced with his teachings, our core value needs to be grace. 
Our churches, they need to be marked by grace, flooded by grace, covered by grace, known for grace. So when one of our own refuses to be gracious, we can't just ignore. There's outrage. There's deep sadness in our hearts. We can call it legalism. When someone that has received the grace of God is not willing to give the same grace to others. We become judgmental. We start condemning others because we think that our case is different than theirs. But when that happens, we should become very distressed. Church should be a community where no one ever struggles alone. When we talk about sin, people need us to raise a hand and not point a finger. They need to see that we are the ones that first declare, I am broken too. I am imperfect too. <clears throat> That's the only response that makes sense in a community that is marked by grace, filled with people who rely on grace to belong to it. And so the master finds out that this guy who had received incredible grace was refusing to give it. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. It doesn't go unnoticed. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. I think this is going to take a long time. How long is it going to take him to earn 150 million euros in prison? He's going to spend the entire lifetime, all of his existence in a cell in prison by his unwillingness to give grace. And shackled by the overwhelming guilt out of what he has done. Do you know what the Bible calls this? The Bible calls this hell. When you are in prison to unforgiveness. Jesus ends this parable with this warning in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And I know that some of us immediately push back on this. What you're telling me, you're telling me, Reuben, if I don't forgive that person that hurt me, that abused me, who betrayed me, that cheated on me, who abandoned me, God won't forgive me back. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what Jesus is saying. Jesus made it clear that you can't receive God's grace and then refuse to give it to others. If God has forgiven your sins, you can continue keeping track of the sins of others. If you do, you will hold on to the bitterness, to this bitter root. Your hurt will soon become hatred. It will poison you. This infection will spread. 
So instead of holding on to the bitterness of what has been done to you, hold it up. Realize it's not sparking joy inside your heart and you need to get rid of it. And I know it's not simple. I know it doesn't seem fair to let it go. But that's what amazing grace is. The greatness of the grace we have received is the greatness of the grace we are to give. And take this in your hearts and take it home. Grace is only grace if it goes both ways. Grace needs to flow. It cannot stop in you. If your relationship with your heavenly father was restored by his grace, then there is nothing that someone has done to you that is greater than the grace that you have received. And you'll never be asked to give more grace than what you've already received from the Lord. Want to invite the worship team to come. I hope that you're not thinking that I'm minimizing the offense of what has been done to you. That I'm not minimizing the hurt in your heart or the seriousness of what happened, of what you need to forgive. I'm not, and neither is Jesus. I understand that you may have had horrible things done to you. And as a pastor, many times people tell me the things that they've been through in life and just imagining putting myself in their shoes is beyond my feelings and my understanding. My heart breaks when I hear about many things that have happened to you. But I'm saying that because of grace, you can stop focusing on what others have done to you and start focusing on what God has done for you. What God has done for you is greater than what others have done to you. And as you, I invite you to close your eyes with me this morning and as we ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and help us understand if we have been missing out on the grace of God. Maybe our hearts have grown bitter, just too hurt and we've closed our hearts and closed our minds to accept the grace of God so that we can give it to others. And I know it is a big challenge. Who said being a Christian is easy? Who said following the ways of God, as loving and kind as they are, would be easy task? It's not. Getting rid of everything that is not sparking joy is hard work. But here we are in the presence of God this morning and we need to be in the presence of God and ask the Lord, Lord, seek our hearts, seek my heart.
Am I withholding your grace from someone in my life? Am I withholding grace for someone in my past? Am I not valuing enough the grace that I have received from you? When you ran towards me, when you clothed me, when you celebrated that I was dead, but now I'm alive in you. And why am I not extending that same grace to others around me? And as we come to the presence of God this morning, let's ask him to change us, to clean us, to take out every single bitter root that is poisonous, that is not letting us be free. Maybe some of you have been feeling like you're this servant that is in prison, that you're not being able to pay that debt. The grace of God is greater. Lord, we're grateful to be in your presence this morning, grateful for your word, grateful to hear so much about your wonderful, marvelous grace. Your grace that is greater than any wrongdoing, your grace that is greater than any sin, your grace that is greater than our lives and anything on this planet, your grace is simply greater and how happy we are, Lord, to share the good news of your grace with our friends at church this morning. Making sure that no one is missing out on your grace. Making sure that no one is neglecting, no one is, is ceasing to being amazed by your wonderful grace. Lord, we, every time we hear this word, every time we read this word, Lord, we want to be on our knees just appreciating and loving you back for everything that you've done for us. A grace that was costly to our Lord Jesus, but he did it for love. He died on the cross for all of us. Thank you, Lord, for this relationship being possible because of him. Father, and we want our lives to be known by grace. We want this church to be known by grace. We want our relationships to be marked by grace. We want our words to be salted by grace. Lord, we want to accept and embrace people, not because of what they've done, but because of how you see them. Lord, and if there are people in this room that are struggling to extend forgiveness, because of the heaviness of sin that was committed against them. Because of the hurt that was instilled. These wounds that are still pastoring and hurting. Father, may they be covered by your grace this morning. We pray for one another so that your grace will be greater in our lives. Will you continue to deal with our hearts, not only today, but during this week? May we find shield and protection in your grace. You are such a good God. You're such a loving Father, and we love you back, Lord, with everything that we have. We want to follow you. 
We give you honor. We give you our praise. In the name of Jesus. Amen.